You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. Happy New Year. Happy New Decade. I hope you've recovered from New Year's Eve, which is often a giant disappointment. That's a secret that we all share and never say, but it's severely overrated and it's an underperformer because it's just a night. Your life doesn't usually change unless you're Harry and Sally in an old movie. But anyway, we've done that. If you're going to start dry January, you've probably started. I hope you're still sticking with it because it's January 3rd or after. And do it or don't. Don't do it on my account. I'm not doing it this year. I participated last year dry January 2019, realized that January is an extremely long month, 31 days. And you know what? It didn't change my life at all. So I'm not doing it. Let's check ourselves for bruises and try to begin again. I love making resolutions. Occasionally, I actually make one that sticks a little bit. Let's summon our better selves and move on to the new year, even though we know January 1st is basically December 32nd, if you catch my drift. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed your holidays. I did. Our guests today are two old pals of mine, Bruce Handy and Joe Queenan. They are both hilarious and thoughtful writers whose paths crossed with mine first at Spy Magazine, or at least Spy TV. And by the way, if you remember Spy, What I miss most about it was not editing it or being part of the cool kids who put it out, but I really enjoyed reading it. And I was always so shocked that they would make fun of rich and powerful people. Ooh, they weren't scared, and it was a great read. Anyway, we are not going to really be talking about Spy, although it will come up. We will be talking about the Peanuts Anthology, called The Peanuts Papers, to which we've all contributed. That's right. Our paths cross again. But first, my list of five things. Number one, hubbub. I had so much hubbub at home. I had my family and my exhibits and a lot of exhibit-adjacent people underfoot for the big holiday week. I cooked a lot. I seemed to be at the supermarket constantly. And when I was not at the supermarket, methinks I was loading and unloading and loading and unloading the dishwasher multiple times a day. That's okay. I just enjoy taking care of my little chickies, chickadees and and the baby and my son's son, who I called Exhibit E, but some of you said it should be, he should be Exhibit A1. I don't know. We can take a vote. What makes sense? Maybe A1. Anyway, he and I played, I would say, a historic game of hide-and-seek that gave him such belly laughs that I fell deeply in love. He is moments away from accepting his Rhodes Scholarship, okay? He's just that advanced. And he started crawling this week, although in California, but he's still crawling. Number two, Bamba, Bamba. However you pronounce it, it's not the socks, which are very nice. It's the Israeli peanut snack. The first time I tried this food, I have to be honest, I found it repellent. It looks like a cheese doodle, 
but it disappoints you if you're looking for cheese because it tastes like peanut butter. Now, I love it. I mean, you just have to be warned that it's not going to taste like cheese, but it's very salt. Well, it's just salty enough and it's addictive. And I've had them in my house just as a snack food, but they are used in Israel and may have been invented for this purpose for babies to chew on because they're very easily, you know, they melt sort of in your mouth. And it's said that it prevents peanut allergies which have become so prevalent. I mean, I lived on peanut butter and jelly, as did my brothers. Nobody I knew was allergic to peanut butter. And now everybody is, except in Israel, where they eat these bambas. Anyway, my son and daughter-in-law love them so much that we went through many bags with the baby and us, and they're good. So number three, there is a column in the New York Times that I have linked to on my website at lisabernbach.com. It's a thoughtful question by a woman who turned 40 and is clearly looking hard at her life. The question was, seriously, how do I find beauty and meaning in my life? Now, yes, it's a privileged question. She's not saying, how can I feed my children on half a salary? Or how can I deal with my partner's drug addiction? She's asking how to find beauty and meaning in life. But I found her willingness to be candid and honest and open, though withholding her name, impressive. And all our lives could be improved with meaning and beauty, whether it's going to the park to admire a landscape or going to a gallery or a museum to see a picture or going online to see a painting or listening to music or reading a poem that you love. It helps. I swear it does. Okay, number four, because it's the new year and we can only have hope at this time, I want to share with you a feel-good story about a community, a very close community, in which this is a true story, and the link is on my page also, a community learned that a new family had moved in, and they had a child who was hard of hearing or completely deaf. And this neighborhood decided, mostly empty nesters, they decided to study American Sign Language so they could communicate with this little girl. Can you imagine that? We think of our neighbors as strangers or enemies or those weirdos down the street, but it's the best kind of story about strangers moving into our midst. And of course, it's it's just a win-win-win-win-win. And so is number five, the medical breakthrough reported in the Australian press in which a vaccine has been developed over two decades that has proven effective, get this, in reversing the symptoms of Alzheimer's and dementia in mice. Human trials are set to begin by 2022, which, if you've been keeping count, is just two years from now. That is thrilling. And now, coming up, Bruce Handy, author of Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult, and Joe Queenan, author of the memoir Closing Time, we all wrote essays for the Peanuts Papers. We'll be right back. It's Lisa Birnbach, and I'm sitting in the studio with writers Joe Queenan and Bruce Handy. 
and they are both journalists. We all worked at one time, not maybe together, but at Spy Magazine, which was a fantastic place to work. And if you don't know what Spy was, ask your mom or dad. And Joe writes for the Wall Street Journal. His column is bi-weekly, bi-monthly. Yeah, I never know the difference. Every other week. Yeah. Which is that? Is that bi-monthly? Beats me. Just uh, as long as I get paid, I don't care. If it's bi-weekly, I believe. That's bi-weekly? bi-weekly? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And Bruce Handy writes for a lot of places, and he's the author of Wild Things, Reading Children's Literature as uh, something an like adult. The Joy of Reading Children's Literature uh, as an Adult. I never thought I would write a book uh, with joy in the title, but... There you have it, I did. One surprises oneself at a certain point, right? Yeah, right? exactly. And we are here because they have both contributed wonderful essays to the Peanuts Papers, which is an anthology put together by Andrew Blauner, who puts together anthologies. Writers and cartoonists in Charlie, on Charlie Brown, Snoopy and the Gang, and the Meaning of Life, and even I wrote an essay for it. And we are brought together by this unlikely theme, because I would love to have conversations with the two of you any old time. But when you were asked to write an essay about Peanuts or the whole Peanuts thing, for you, Bruce, you had just written a book about children's literature, and it's sort of your wheelhouse now. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And that that seemed like a a kind of a natural way into... um uh, into peanuts. I actually, I I proposed two different essays. I proposed essentially the essay I ended up uh, writing, which was kind of looking at um, looking at, at 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 peanuts both as uh, literature for children, which in some senses it is, and in many senses it's not, and also what it has to say about about children uh, to an adult reader. Um, and I also pitched an essay about Shermie, who I always thought was kind of an interesting sort of character, um, you know, who starts out in the early days of Peanuts and then kind of disappears. Um, they were, uh, Andrew was much more interested in the um, uh, in the uh, kind of uh, children's literature approach, but I did get to, I did wedge in, I did manage to wedge in Shermie uh, at the end there. Um, yeah, but no, yeah, it was fun to just to go back and, and investigate that and, and you know, part of the process was, I mean, obviously I'd read Peanuts a ton as a kid, and um, but, you know, I hadn't really looked at it in, in, in a while, except in the sense that, you know, when always Peanuts is kind of in the atmosphere, so one always sees it. But, you know, going back, and I still have my old collections and reading them, um, yeah, it was kind of shocking. I was, I was surprised how kind of, uh, you know, often sort of nasty and cruel the, the, the strip is. I mean, obviously, you know, you know, we all know Charlie Brown gets picked on, but, you know, sometimes it, it's... It's just, you know, it's almost, I don't know, I don't want to be pretentious, but it's almost like, you know, this kind of Dostoevsky and despair that, like, you know, Charlie Brown is is submitted to. And it's interesting reading Joe's essay where I think you you, you, came, you came out with a much more sort of positive, no I think, if, yeah, view of, uh, of what Peanuts is doing, which is interesting to me about the strip because you can, it can be interpreted in so, so many, many different ways, ways and yeah. come at it from so many different angles. Yeah, and adults um, ruin life, as we know. <laughs> and um, I think that that was one of the things that I loved about that um, comic strip was they kept the adults out of it. Uh, and like the other, all the other things like the better half or any of those cute little things would always have this sort of exasperated mother and father. They didn't have any of that. They had their own universe. And I thought I, that's what I really liked about it. And there was one strip that I cut out and kept 
because I got so many rejection slips when I first started writing. And you get rejection slips because you're dealing with adults. You're 25 and you're sending your stuff to people in their 50s who have no sense of humor and who are past it. And they're, re- and they're sending you things, this does not suit our current needs. <laughs> yeah. Or it would just be better to say, it's horrible. It sucks. I don't want to read this, okay? So there was a Snoopy one where he gets this rejection letter and it says, we notice that you have not sent us any manuscripts recently. Pause. This suits our current needs. <laughs> and anybody who had ever been an aspiring writer would identify with that in a way that, you know, I would never identify with Charlie Brown or with Lucy, I, but I could identify with that because he was an aspiring writer. And I totally understood Charlie Brown's relentless attempt to kick his ball or to not be picked on because I was totally bullied in school. And I just, every time it happened, I was shocked anew. And I know that, I guess, adults reading the cartoon strip would think, why is he even bothering to play football with these people? And why is he, why does he expect the outcome to be different? But you know, we're insane. Well, Charlie Brown, I think, is kind of, you know, I think that's sort of, hero- that was something I also just, I found, you know, reengaging with it as an adult. I think there's something heroic about Charlie Brown's perseverance. You know, he, he has, um, I kind of wrote about this in the essay, in my essay a little bit. When we, uh, when our daughter was uh, first born, my wife's aunt gave us a card and she said in the card, you know, I, I wish for Zoe, my daughter, to have a passion, which at the time I thought was was. A little bit weird. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I I didn't really get what she meant. But then as kids got older and I saw that, you know, kids who really do have passions, you know, they they do interesting things in life. And, you know, people without passions become, I don't know, bankers or whatever. I don't know. But um, I I just think, you know, Charlie Brown has a passion. I think, you know, Charlie Brown, obviously, he has a miserable childhood. But, you know, I bet, you know, if Charlie Brown existed, he he might be a kind of interesting adult. He might be somebody you would like to, you might like to know and hang out with. Because, I mean... Yeah, you have to be a little bit, you know, nuts, but in an interesting way to keep, you know, keep trying to kick the football. You know, in 2008, I was going down with my daughter um, from New York to Philadelphia to see the last game of the World Series. And my kids had never seen any of the Philadelphia teams because I'm from Philadelphia. They had never seen any of the teams win, not one of the four teams. 25 years, never won. And I said to my daughter that day, I said, why do we do this? And she said, well... You read the myth of Sisyphus, right? And I said, yeah. And she goes, Sisyphus wouldn't put, push the rock up the hill if he didn't think it was worth it. And it's like from the mounds of babes, wow. you know. And then she said, do you remember the last line of the myth of Sisyphus? And I said, no. And she said, and so we, re- we imagine Sisyphus happy. So that's wow. Charlie Brown. You're doing it because y- you do think it's worthwhile, no matter how frustrating it is. And that's a really valuable lesson for people to learn. And how old was your daughter when she was, like, remembering the last line of Sisyphus? 25. Wow. She was 25. Yeah. Okay, yeah. you win parenting in this yeah. studio. You win it. I mean, that's a good – that's a very high-level conversation to have about well, baseball and about football or about life. Yeah. but And there's also that amazing thing that happens – it certainly happened with my parents when I was about 12, where my parents realized he's so much smarter than us. Because my parents were blue collar. And the same thing happens with your children, hopefully, where at a fairly early point, you realize she's she's a lot smarter than me. 
You know, I'm still making more money, maybe, but she's she's just smarter than me. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, my kids are a lot smarter than me too. In case they're listening, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to add that. Yeah, and mine are much smarter, and they can do math, which you know is hopeless for me. The quest of these kids and their independence was always so interesting to me that they had a very organized life without grownups. I mean. Well, they do. I mean, the grownups are there. You know, they're, they're still going. They they still have to go to school. You know, the teachers are off screen. You know, there there are references to parents off. I mean, it's not like right. It's, it's not, not like, Lord, you know, of, Lord the of the Flies. Flies exactly. Right. Actually, it should have been. That would have been really interesting if they had all ended up uh, on an island together. Yeah, but by the way, when you talk about a grown up Charlie Brown, I imagined him to be Michael J. Pollard as an adult. <laughs> I don't imagine him ever being grown up. Ever. I don't, I mean, you know, there was a play on Broadway about 20 years ago, which was about Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer when they grow up. Right. And one of them is a drunk and a loser, and the other one, I think, had, like, it was a child molester or something. I don't know exactly what, but it was just a terrible idea. Tom Sawyer and, and Huck Finn must always, just like Scout, Scout can't Scout grow up. Scout can't grow, can't grow up. up. Right. No, because it's always going to be. It's going to be, you know, it's it's just going to be a disappointment. It's better to have them in that. That's what's so great about fiction is, you know, Jane Eyre, that's it. She's married now. She's with Rochester, and she's about 30, she, something like that. And she's done, yeah. And she's done, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, what's amazing to me is that Peanuts has the longevity that it does. I mean, it does seem to be newly uh, apropos. People still love the TV specials, which still air every year around this time, don't they? Yeah, well, certainly the uh, yeah the the, um, the, Christmas the Christmas one, one does, yeah. right? And the Halloween one does, the Great Pumpkin, and, and the Christmas music is pretty inescapable this you know this time of year. Once right. you get lodged into the American consciousness, you have to work really hard to get dislodged. So, like I remember when I was working at Barron's, they did a story where they went back and looked at companies from the 1920s that were still selling products like you know Tide detergent or. Um, Kellogg's cornflakes mm-hmm. or, you know, Ford cars. And I think that Peanuts is like that, that once you have established yourself as you're part of this culture, you really have to do something awful to get dislodged. You're just there. Peanuts right. gets canceled. Yeah, it would be, uh, yeah, it turned out, uh, yeah, Charlie Brown was, anyway, I'm not going right. to pursue that thought. No, don't go there. But, you know, yeah. I think that's a good point, though. But also, I think, I, I think, and one thing that was that was valuable to me uh, in doing this project, and, and both in terms of writing my own piece and then reading, you know, the rest of the book, was reminding really how rich Peanuts is. Because I think in the sense that a lot of it, it a lot of Peanuts is kind of lodged in the, um, in the American culture you know, in the American consciousness right now, a lot of it is kind of the more, you know, kind of banal, sweet, sort of late period peanuts, you know, it's like Snoopy and Woodstock and, you know, Spike and it's, and, you know, this, this horrible, what is it, Metropolitan Life ads. I mean, the whole thing is really, to the extent, I I think a a lot of people, probably a lot of younger people might think of peanuts, their, their version of peanuts, I think is, 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 is a very neutered, you know, version of Peanuts compared to if you go back and, and look at the strips, especially I think from the, you know, maybe to, from the mid 50s through to the maybe mid 70s, which to me would be, you know, roughly when it when it's at its peak and it's and it's most creative and it's often often very dark and it's often very, very, very bleak. I mean, th- there's one there's one comic strip that 
that I wrote about in my essay that I was kind of shocked to see. There, there's it's Charlie Brown. He's it's Valentine's Day. It's a classic thing. He's watching the little red haired girl, you know, pass out Valentines, and he's kind of his monologue. It's like she's giving one here, she's giving one there. She's coming here. She's not coming here. She's done, and then he's just sitting there. And then the last line is he's he's got this this amazing. I mean, it's 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 also just a real tribute to Schultz's drawing ability. He's got this his mouth is just kind of in this weird wiggly sort of frown. You can tell he's just about to. It's just capturing that moment right before you 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 break out in tears. It's it's really brilliant draftsmanship and just and the and the the quote unquote punchline of the piece is Happy Valentine's Day. I mean, that's it. It's not even a joke. It's right. just like it's. It's horrible. It's horrible. You know, and that is that's a very far, you know, thing from, you know, like Snoopy and Woodstock in a Metropolitan Life ad, you know. Um, well, and also it's very dark and in a way very progressive thinking for this man in Santa Clara or wherever he is. Santa, Santa Rosa. Santa, Santa Rosa, Rosa. North, yeah. North, California, who was kind of, you know, relegated to the kids, funny papers, but was a very profound thinker. Well, it's, it's... it's Boy, do I relate to that Valentine one, by the way. Well, and so does everybody. I mean, that's the thing. You look at this thing, and... and uh, I mean, I don't know about you guys. I look at it, and I guess it's dark. And in some ways, it's like, you know... I mean, obviously, a lot of it's funny and brilliant, but a lot of it is like, well, how... You know, Penis is, like, one of the most popular things ever, right? Penis is up there with, like, the Beatles and Harry Potter, I mean, in terms of mass popularity. Mm-hmm. But it's also... Well, also like, you know, the Beatles and, and Harry Potter. Some, yeah, in some ways it's really weird and singular and very particular. It's very much of this one guy's mind. Yes. I was in Chicago about 10 years ago doing a radio program for the BBC about Al Capone and Elliot Ness. And um, I went with uh, somebody from the Chicago Historical Society to um, the place where the St. Valentine's Day massacre took place. And by the time that massacre took place, um, Al Capone had killed about a thousand people and nobody cared. Absolutely nobody cared. And that day, they violated a number of rules. The Italians came from the south side. The north side was the Irish. They did it in plain daylight. They did it right across the street from a school. But the th- and they dressed up in cops' uniforms. But the thing that turned the entire country against Al Capone was they did it on Valentine's Day. And the American people said, what kind of people are these? It was such a major moment. And it was... And from wow. that, Yeah. Yeah. And it's like... I'm not going to mention names, but you always hope with evil people. Evil people are lucky until they're not lucky. And you just keep hoping that, I won't mention anybody by name, but you just hope for that St. Valentine's Day massacre day where they do the one thing that people are like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, like make fun of a, a, you know, a a captured war hero or... You know, make fun of a, a, a gold Norwegian star family, girl. and yeah. then it's all yeah. gone. Yeah, yeah. And it all but, just blows up. But that's the yeah. thing: is you keep wondering what is the moment when you know there is the moment where, like uh, George Bush the first, the thing with the scanning the socks, and all of a sudden the American people realize he doesn't know what a scanner is. He's not right. like us. All that stuff about eating pork rinds and a, you know right. a shotgun yeah. shack in Texas and Horses. you know it's all <laughs> we now realize. And you know you keep. You keep hoping that that moment will occur. Yeah, maybe it will. You know, when I wrote my essay, my essay was written for The Guardian a few years ago, and it was written to explain what this was, why it was such a big phenomenon. So you you have an advantage when you're explaining something 
when you don't have to guess, well, they'll know that. They'll know that. And you have to tell the whole story and put it in historical context. And that's a really entertain. That's a really great form of writing because you you can just take all the information that you have and it's as if you were talking to a child. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's what, where my essay came from. And I didn't have any particular attachment to that comic strip except that when we were young, those things dominated the world because there weren't that many things. There were It was a quieter, slower yeah, I, world that we grew up they in. T- people read the comics. You know, people did the crossword puzzle. And now, of course, everything's fragmented. So, you know, you talk to people and they go, have, have you watched Ozark? No, it's great. Okay, but I was watching The Marvelous Mrs. Meisel or something. <laughs> yeah. And there's no thing that's going to, except professional football there's no thing that's going to unite everybody and those things those things were culturally dominant and that's how they imprinted themselves on the consciousness of the but people. you guys ever I, I find sometimes like like you know i'll be in the in the subway and there'll be some like you know billboard you know especially in september when you know there still is sort of a fall season for tv and broadcast and there'll be some like cbs cop show or something it's like you know, back for its tenth season. I'm like, I've never even heard of this yes. show, yes. but it's been around for ten years. It's got a huge. It's probably got a, a much bigger audience than, yeah, Mrs. Maisel or you know, Watchmen, the things that my Twitter feed are you know right. sort of obsessed with at the moment. Um, I find that all the time, but I also find we are out of it, coastal elites. Yes, we are, but we're older. That's yeah. the other thing is we're yeah. older. Yeah, yeah, but then conversely, you know, you talk to young people and. You say you were at the Buffalo Bill Museum, and they think Buffalo Bill is a character from Silence of the Lambs. Have never heard of <laughs> Buffalo Bill. Have wow. never heard of Buffalo wow. Bill. Right. You know, I do miss very much the commonality of what we shared in Philadelphia, in Palo Alto, in New York. We still had a lot of similar touchstones because we had the Peanuts cartoon strip. We watched Laugh-In wherever we were. We had... And the news was something that was manageable because you only watched it once a day. And the paper came out every morning and the evening paper. People don't understand that either. No. Every American city of any size had more than two papers. And those two papers might or might not reflect different political leanings. And you knew that if you wanted to read something that was pro-war, you'd read this. And if you wanted something that was more pacifistic, you'd read that. Kids, it was like having Fox News and MSNBC in print. <laughs> but yet, the broadcast news was neutral, yeah. right? Didn't we understand... Well, Nixon, Nixon, I mean, I would agree with you. Nixon wouldn't have agreed with you. But. Right, right. But didn't we understand that the delivery system was, was supposed to be unbiased? Well, that was, yeah. I mean... But people on the right didn't believe that. They always felt that the... Look, when I worked at Forbes magazine, um, Forbes magazine was run by extremely conservative people, okay? But the staff, which is more than 100 people, is 100 journalists who live in New York. There there are no... There's two conservatives on the staff. Everybody else is a wishy-washy liberal collecting a paycheck, working for a conservative publication. But But, of course... Of course, journalists were always going to lean to the left. It's like when people say, well, what do you think people on Wall Street are like? They all lean to the right. They're capitalists. The, the, the idea that, that, that the media would, be, would not be slightly to the left, which is what it is. It's slightly to the left, 
Why would that astonish people? It's young people. It's people who live in New York. It's people who live in Chicago. Of course, they're more liberal than you well, are. And they're, they're, you know, it's people who are, you know, questioning by nature, you know. And curious um, and are not doing their job in order to become rich. But I would say one thing about what we're talking about, which is if you went back 4,000 years, um, my son and I were talking about this one time, which was the whole back in the good old days conversation, which is in 1830, if you got French people together, they would be going, in 1789, <laughs> people really knew how to work a guillotine. I mean, people, <laughs> you know, my dad was like a tumbrel repairman. And, and, and it's like, it's just an inevitable part of life. I think the hard, hard thing for people to understand, first of all, every kid should read Death of a Salesman, because that tells you this is what's going to happen to you, okay? And it's not, and it and it comes to the point where, okay, person's in their 60s, and they're thrown out in the street, and their argument is, but I have skills that young people don't have. Nobody cares. Right. The world doesn't care. The world moves on, and this is the way it's always been. So, I mean, I would love... You know, you see, like, people like Volker. Volker died, and he was 91, I think, mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. I'm 69. I would love to live into my 90s so that I can hear my kids going, oh, my God, when I was young, it was so much better. <laughs> you know, people knew who Beethoven <laughs> and was. Sisyphus. And Sisyphus. And people held the door for you at the, you know, at the, the 930 club. Right. Yeah. Okay. No, I just think it's... Hey, can I can I amend something I said earlier? I, I was talking about that that uh, that uh, journalists being you know sort of as and we were all talking about journalists being kind of inherently somewhat skewed to the left. And I think I said something like, you know, they're questioning. I didn't mean to imply that that conservatives aren't questioning or curious. But I, I think what I was trying to get at the idea that I, I I do think there is something inherently kind of anti-establishment about about what propels you into into journalism because you want to sort of pick at things and and. Maybe that is inherently a leftist uh, and, impulse. And the people who had the skills to be great journalists on the right became investment bankers. Journalism doesn't pay well, certainly not anymore, not since the Internet came. So, of course, people, you know, if if the right wants great journalists, then they have to have willing people willing to work for $35,000 a year. Yeah. What do you think about the online publishers who say to you or you or me quite seriously... I know we don't pay, but we get a lot of views. <laughs> I say, always say the same thing. Yeah. A kiss on the cheek may be quite continental, <laughs> but diamonds are a girl's best friend. Yes. Yeah, I always say, you know, all those views don't, don't pay tuition. But I used to say, I love writing so much, I would do it for nothing, and now I'm being put to the yeah. test. <laughs> I mean, if... It, a lot of publications like overseas that you used to work for, they can't pay you anything now. I mean, you're doing a public service by writing for them. Well, but I, it, I'll do it. Guess what? It is a public service, It though. is a public service, though. Right. I agree. I think there's something inherently, not just the curiosity of the journalist, but I think the goodness of the journalist. When I read about Julie K. Brown, the reporter in Miami who uncovered the Jeffrey Epstein crimes and who really who who really got the show back on the road with him she worked on that story for two three years nobody wanted to help her nobody wanted to help her nobody saw it going anywhere 
you know, she didn't do it for glory. She was also raising a family and getting a staff salary. Yeah. But those kinds of reporters, as opposed to a lot of younger reporters, are tarriers. And once they get their teeth into the thing, they're not going to let it go. And they're not just going to do internet searches. They're going to go out and they're going to talk to people. And that's a big thing. You have to go out yes. and talk to people. But yes. also, and, and, and there's still at least, you know, in some cases, hopefully there's still enough in- infrastructure to support these people. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a problem. I, I, you know, I've worked with uh, investigative journalists as, a, as an editor. And yeah, sometimes you have to be willing to let somebody go for like a year or longer to pursue something. Yeah, you said what it took her two years to, to get least, that story. Yeah, you know, and, yeah. and it used to be you know there used to be so many more outlets that would support that work, and now it's becoming harder, or it literally becomes you know nonprofit work. Like I think ProPublica or Pro Publica, Publica. I don't know how to say it. Um, I think it's a poo. Poo Publica. And there's also the thing that if you're going to do a story about the mob, for example, or the Russian mob or any number of people, if you're not doing that under the aegis of the New York Times or the Washington Post, you shouldn't do it. You will not have any kind of protection. So that's one of the things, too, is that those institutions are so important because they can give journalists a certain cover. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, exactly. Or, mm-hmm. Yeah, or certainly, you know, a lot of the Me Too story, exactly. I mean, going after going after Harvey Weinstein without, you know, the New York Times backing you up on a potential libel suit, for instance. Yeah. Well, look what NBC did. Yeah. I mean, they buckled on that one. Everybody was terrified. Well, of, what um, Hearst Magazine, or what, uh, yeah, Hearst, uh, Hearst Corporation did with the Brian Singer story I happen to know something about. Yes, that's right. And the, um, what's his name? The um, Madoff, okay. Right. Everybody People knew that story. People knew he was telling people 12% return, 12% return, 12% return. People in the financial press knew, but they were afraid of him. Wow. Barron's came I didn't close. Know, I didn't know that it was oh so God, well yeah. known. Barron's came close to doing it and just backed off at the last minute, I think, because it was just he's got too much money. Um, but people people knew that it was there was something wrong with that story. There was just something wrong with it. And, of course, as we later read many times in many places, if you were a client of Madoff's, you were so excited. If you were not a financial savant, you would look at your return with 12%, 12%, 12%, and put it away and not want to, you know, what I don't know, I don't want to know. But if you called your friend who was a client, you would see that that, re- that report was identical. They didn't even bother no. to create no. yeah. to create individual reports for people. Yeah. They could have layered it like six percent for you, nine yeah. percent. No, no, exactly. no. But you know what? I how told- many people share their finance? I mean, we're, isn't that like the biggest privacy? Yes. Of all, it's a taboo to talk about. I mean, that it. was like when when I when my wife and I got together. I mean, those are very you know. I don't think we merged. You know, the, I mean, we lived together for like. You know, several years before we got married, but I don't think it was until after uh, after we actually got married that we finally merged our bank accounts. Like that was the hardest, you know, conceptual. Um, I, I I think it is very private and very embarrassing to talk about money. I was raised to not talk about it. We didn't period. have any, so we didn't talk about it. But I mean, I don't we all work together. I had no idea what you guys were making. I, well, I hope you don't know what. I uh, I, I absolutely. You know, this is one of the things about being a freelance writer is I would never, first of all, I never pitched a story, ever. 
once somebody said, I want you to write a story for Esquire or something, they would say, what do you want? I would say, well, how much are you going to pay me? Because I can't stand talking about money. I can't stand I can't stand it. And so I would just say, how much is it? And if it wasn't enough, I would say, well, I little, need a little bit more. But I hate discussing it. And sometimes over the years, you know, people have this idea that if you're a freelance writer, it's precarious, right? Life is precarious, but but being a freelance writer means you don't have to go to work. So freelance writers are wired in a completely different way where it's like, what did, What would be the most terrifying thing for most people? I lose my job. I don't have any money. What would be the most terrifying thing for me? I have to go to work. So, <laughs> But wait, we do work. We just don't necessarily go someplace. Right. But you don't know necessarily you're going to get paid. You're going to not get paid. But, but you get to thing, work in sweatpants. That's but, the big excitement. But, yeah, exactly. Right. But the thing is, is that people will say, um, you know, how, how do you... Uh, you know, how do you know how much you're going to wake and work and how much did you get for that? And, you know, if you were on Don Imus, and I just say, well, do you want to send me on tax returns? You know, can I see your tax returns? That's my business, how much money I make. Okay. And, it's, you know, and it's the same way with my kids. You know, if my son asks me how much money do you make, none of your business. Right. You know, you'll find right. out soon enough when, <laughs> when I've spent it all. <laughs> <laughs> when you have to fill out those forms. By the way, I hope I got paid as much as either of you on this Peanuts book because I only got paid a few months ago and I'm just going to put up my hand. I got this many hundreds. Yeah. Did you? Did you get more? You got more, Bruce. Yeah. He but did. I'd already been paid for my for my column. I, oh, I'd by the Guardian. Guardian. Yeah. So you double dipped. It was funny. Mo- it was found money. Nice. I got paid. I got. Yeah, I got paid less than you. And as a friend of mine says, as uh, being a freelance journalist, which is a dream come true in a way, he says, I get paid in the hundreds and my bills are in the thousands. You know, it's funny, though, because because now you don't get checks anymore. And, and we got a check for that. I love when you get a check. I because like for checks. one thing, when I get a check, that money does not belong to my wife or my household. That goes into the special account to buy stupid stuff, and those che- and so royalty checks are the same thing. You know, you get three hundred dollars for something published in Australia, um, but that rarely happens anymore. I just nobody pays by check. Hey, how many people invite you to lunch these days? Oh my God, that's the worst thing about it. <laughs> you know, I do I do legacy lunches now, where I take people to lunch from GQ who used to take me to lunch because they're not working anymore. Right. And yeah, I really met, I mean, I liked but, being a journalist, but I really liked the limos. You know, you when, when I was writing for GQ, you know, I'd be, be with my friends and we'd go to the Union Square Cafe for lunch and, and they would limo us back and forth. It was just, oh my God. I never had limos, but I did love the lunches. I love. We the did lunches, see. We yeah. lived through a, you know, we lived through the end of a golden era or something. I don't know. Yeah, really the end because I think twenty, fifty years ahead of us, they really lived it up. But I was sitting in. Um, I was in Dumbo. Condé Nast in in the nineties and <laughs> yeah. early two thousands was yeah. still pretty good. Yeah, right. Yeah, you had a town car for every errand and go going. to Paris for a week 
and be an ambassador to the French. Go to Hawaii. Go to Australia. Take it. Take the family. You know, and, <laughs> oh my and, you God! Know, you know what? I re- I was in Dumbo at the first time that I was ever at one of these things. I was at a book signing, and you had to pay to go to the book signing. Ten dollars to pay to go to the book signing. I didn't pay because it was a friend of mine who got me in. And afterwards, a whole bunch of us went out to um, uh, a tapas bar right around there. And one of them was Sam Tannenhaus from the New York Times. And there was a guy named Jay Jennings, who's now the editor of the Oxford American. There were a few of us. And we had all worked for Sports Illustrated or Time Magazine or GQ. And we were all telling stories. And there was this young guy sitting there. We were just telling limos. And they sent me to Paris. And I did this. And I did that. And there was this young guy sitting there. And finally, at one point, one of us said, boy, I really miss those days. And the guy looked at us and says, it sounds to me like you sucked the whole thing dry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, for those those who had those jobs really enjoyed them. They enjoyed the bar car at Time Inc. They enjoyed uh, expense accounts. Lunch at the Royalton. Mm-hmm. And I guess I, if I were interviewing somebody who on a plane, which I like to do because you had their their attention for so many hours. Oh my god, you like you just like if I'm sitting next to you on a plane, you suddenly start interviewing me. That's like the most frightening thing I've ever By heard. Sorry, pre-arrangement. No oh, By okay, pre-arrangement. Okay. Oh, okay. I wouldn't just uh, ambush somebody, but oh, I hate you airplane know, conversations. That's like a phobia. No, I don't talk to people okay. on airplanes. Make no mistake. But if I were, let's say, going to interview John Denver on a plane. And word, Why'd you pull that example? Because I did once do that. Oh, I, just, oh, I, just, okay. I did once do that, and he flies first class, so I have to fly first class. And there was a time, I think, that you'd get flown first class if you were going across the country anyway. But Yeah, yeah that was what, kind of the deal, or at least business class. Yeah, yeah that, those yeah. days are gone. Gone, yeah. gone, gone. Yeah. But you know what else? People don't know how to do real research because they think that it's just clicking Wikipedia. I have a friend who teaches at NYU, and he literally teaches a class, you know, the title of which is, you know, something like, you know, Research Beyond Google, you know, telling kids how to, like, actually go to a library, look at an archive. Yes, yes, yes. That's why I recommend that people watch All the President's Men, because that, that beautifully shot scene of Woodward and Bernstein in the rotunda of the Library of Congress is pretty great if yeah. you see how many card catalog uh, index cards they go through. Well, this has been a great conversation. Some of it about peanuts. Yeah, we got pretty far afield. Yeah. But why not? Yeah. I mean, it's just a treat to see the two of you and have a conversation. Yeah, it's great. And I think that's what everybody wants to hear anyway. If they want more peanuts, they can go buy the book. Okay, that's what I'm going to say. But first, you both came up with your list of five things, and we can't not do that. That's That would be breaking every rule in this show's handbook. So, Bruce, I want to start with you. Do you have a copy of yes, your I list? Yes, I do. I see okay. it right there me. Thank okay, you. Okay, good. So let's talk about your five things. Okay. Um, well, first of all, I, I, I did a preface, um, which I'll read, my five things. Uh, leave aside family and friends, which to my mind uh, go without saying uh, for our purposes here, but of course not in day-to-day life where, you know, you acknowledging and and never taking your friends and family for granted is a rule to live by. Yes, and you've already mentioned that your kids are much smarter than you and yes, Helen. Yes, exactly. Right. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, I, Helen, I don't know, definitely smarter than me. Helen okay. is very smart. Helen yeah. is smarter than me, too. Um <laughs> 
You've taken uh, care of everybody. Yeah. Right. Uh, okay. So number one. Okay. Uh, so these are my things. So uh, number one is uh, collaboration, and I, I put that down partly because I've I've been involved in a in a project recently with uh, a picture book project with an illustrator and an editor who are both great, and it's been a really sort of exciting, just process and and fun and and kind of reminded me of you know how important collaboration was, which actually. Uh, going back to talking about Spy, which was one of the great work experiences of my life, just because it was such a collaborative place, and and it felt like you know a lot of smart people pushing everybody to do better in a in a mostly you know we we had our you know tips and whatnot, but mostly I thought in a in a healthy, constructive, fun, playful way. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so take a lot of uh, I don't know, collaboration definitely makes my life better. Um, I put New York City. I mean that's just kind of a um, in some ways, that was a catch-all. I was just thinking about New York, and just in terms of, of being so kind of culturally uh, rich and diverse place, and how stimulating it is. And, and um, you know, I love being in a place where I can, you know, walk to Lincoln Center and see a world-class opera, or go across the street and see a movie in a Barca lounger, or you know, film forum and museums and all that. You know, um, it's just that's what makes life worth living. Obviously, New York is not the only place that has great culture. Um, similarly, I put down California as my third thing. Again, kind of uh, a little bit uh, going into stereotyping, but, you know, thinking of California as a, as a, as a place of, you know, physical beauty and, and outdoors life and, and great food and, and kind of certain, you know, sybaritic thing, which I think sort of balances, you know, balances New York. And I think both of having grown up in California, those things have contributed to me. Um, I put Tony Bennett still being alive because every time I listen to him, I like when obviously he's just so wonderful too. And it's just like he's still alive, he's still recording, he's still great. I and mean, it's just like amazing he's that still we still painting. have Tony he's, Bennett. You he's know, still I, upright. I mean that yeah. you know that makes life better. You know, um, I agree. Not much more to say about that. And age, I was just saying, I don't know. I um, yeah, I turned sixty-one last month, so I guess that's been on my mind. But. Um, yeah, I have my health, so things are good. So I like I like being older. I like feel like I'm you know smarter. I don't know accumulated experience makes things more you know I don't know. It's like studying history, right? I mean, it's like having your own history. But I I, I truly believe just I mean in general studying history makes you know makes you understand the world better. And certainly I think you know having accumulated a certain amount of one's own history also you know makes one kind of, you know, just get more out of everything. So that's my, those are my five things. One time I was talking to my son and I was saying the only advantage to being older is I have the money. And he said, no, you know how your life turned out. That's (laughs) a huge advantage. Oh, wow. Because if you're 27 and you're just starting out, you have no idea how your life, are you going to be successful? Because I remember when I was in my early 30s, the thought of not being successful was terrifying. Not the money part, but the uh, the idea of not being able to work as a writer was just an awful thought. And then, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later, you've been doing it, and it's great. It's a great feeling. Well, sometimes, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's, yeah, I, I, I totally understand that. I mean, sometimes when I'm, you know, if I'm frustrated by something or, you know, have a, you know, career setback or, you know, whatever, or somebody reject whatever, you know, I'm just kind of... Uh, you know, but I think back, okay, you know, yeah, if I went back to, like, you know, 20 or 25 and said, okay, here's how it's going to, you know, play out, you know, I think my 25-year-old would be, self would be, you know, yeah, that's pretty, you know, that's, I got to, you know, I got to do stuff that I enjoyed and I got to work with great people and, 
you know, I got to, yeah, it was, yeah, it all worked out. I mean, I it worked out, of, worked out well enough, so. I sort of feel like I don't know how it's all going to end for me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm hoping for. Yeah, I'm not signing you know, off. I'm not signing yeah. off here either. Yeah, yeah by the way. I'm hoping the curve keeps going in some direction. That's up. When I go into museums, I always look at how old the painter was when he painted these things, and it's amazing that you'll see people like um, uh, Monet. He was Monet painting in his eighties. Renoir mm-hmm. was painting. Um, Edward Hopper was painting, and it's like it is. It's really Rembrandt painted fairly late. Um, and then you hear stories about like Verity retired at age sixty nine and then came out of retirement at age eighty one. So those things are always encouraging. Just yeah. to, just see because most people, to me, when people talk about retirement, that's basically death or golf, you know, one or the other. But I mean, you you basically have shut down the shop, and and people who do stuff like like us don't wake up one morning and say, okay, I've done it. I'm not going to do that. I don't have any more story ideas. Um, now, and musicians are like that. Painters are like that. It'd be a drag to just say, yeah, I've done enough. And the reason they want to retire is because they hated their jobs for 40 years. I would guess, yeah. Them. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, that's actually, that's, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I feel like, you know, I mean, that's, that's one thing I, I like about Gainwell because I feel like I have more ideas and better ideas and, I don't know, more interesting than me. You know, maybe uh, today's gatekeepers might not, might not agree with me, but, you know, I, you know, I like, um, yeah, I don't know. I but also feel like I feel I'm, like getting old has made me better. I feel more me than I've ever been. But one thing that I think is very interesting is um, people say, do you ever go back and look at stuff that you wrote when you were young and does it embarrass you? When I go back and look at stuff when I was like 28 or 29, that was it. You got to that level and you had better work habits, but you didn't become a better writer. You, You were locked in early musicians are locked in early and you you and the other problem with writing satire is you're inevitably repeating yourself because there's a particular setup to satire which is you throw some stupid idea out there and then you go i am certainly not suggesting but <laughs> but you've done that like a thousand times because yeah. that's what satire is satire yeah. is there's a there's a template and you just go in that direction but um i i don't know if people I don't know if people actually get, get better. I think they get they know more. But in terms of writing, I think you have such incredible energy and ebullience and excitement when you start out, and you feel like the English language belongs to you. And then time passes, and it's it shouldn't become autopilot. It shouldn't become boring. But it does become, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna substantially improve the way you write. Not once you get into your sixties. Okay, good to know. It's one of our, okay. um, yeah, it's one of your sponsors, the double ARP. I feel yeah, like I really like exactly. this uh, whole conversation. <laughs> okay, Joe, just do your five things, all right? <laughs> okay, my five things. First, live classical music, and of course, New York's a great place to be because you have orchestras. You can go to Juilliard five times a day and hear kids doing And And it's also, I love the Secret Handshake Society part, part to classical music. Is I literally never meet anybody I know when I go to Carnegie Hall or Avery Fisher Hall because journalists don't listen to classical right. music. I love well. the secret. I love the fact that this belongs to me and and Ricardo Muti and Esa Pekka So that Philadelphia Eagles, been a fan since I was 13, watched the Eagles play the Redskins. He's got an Eagles scarf on, by the way. Yeah, of course. Watched the Eagles play the Redskins yesterday on Skype with my daughter. So she had to get the game up on her Uh, computer, then put FaceTime on, and we Skyped for three hours. That girl really likes professional football. So that's... So you did... And she likes Sisyphus. 
And she likes Sisyphus. So yeah. you've done something right. We were together the night the Eagles won the Super Bowl. We knew what it's like to push the rock up the hill. So what, yeah, what was that? I mean, yeah, what was that like? Did that just... It was the most amazing, except for my kids being born, it was the most amazing experience of my life. When, when the entire city is out on Broad Street. It was unbelievable. Where were you when you watched it? I was you in, Philadelphia. in Philadelphia. I didn't want to go to the Super Bowl. I wanted to be in Philadelphia. And as soon as it was over, we went out onto Broad Street, my wife, my daughter, and we stayed out till four o'clock in the morning. And it was absolutely fantastic. And we went into this um, diner that I've been going into since I was like 18. And they said, we don't have any rolls left, so we, can I serve you your cheesesteak on pita bread? And I said, just this once. And then I looked over at my daughter a few minutes later, and I said, what are you eating? She said, I'm eating a cheesesteak. I said, I thought you were a vegetarian. She said, not tonight. <laughs> so that's that. France, I went to France when I was 21. I lived there for a year, so I went over everybody. If you go to France, if you can live in Paris for a year, like Hemingway said, movable feast, best thing ever. You know, just great. And not having a job, I've talked about that at length. I just want that on my gravestone, Joe Queen, and, you know, didn't spend much time in the office. <laughs> and, then, and then my kids. My kids is definitely. I, and I think I put my kids there because we we do say, like, my kids, of course, but my parents wouldn't have put kids on their list of the five favorite things. They just thought they were poor and they just thought it was a drag. And lots of people do not derive the kind of pleasure they they should when I talk to people and I say how many kids do you have and they say five and I go where they live and I go I live in Maine Colorado and I said do you miss them and they go no no one should ever say that that's the worst thing imaginable yeah, to awful. say that yeah. yeah yeah I miss my kids now because they're not in this room with me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's normal shaking right? us down for money <laughs> but that's performing. Do I have to say that now, too? No. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. Well, thank you, gentlemen, for a yo. very entertaining conversation. Thank you for um, listening to Five Things That Make Life Better. My guests this week have been Joe Queenan and Bruce Handy, contributors to Andrew Blauner's The Peanuts Papers, writers and cartoonists on Charlie Brown, Snoopy and the Gang, and The Meaning of Life. And they got paid more than I did. Joe's moving target column appears in the Wall Street Journal bi-weekly. Yes. And you can follow Bruce on Twitter at Henry Effing James, which I've always loved. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play Music, YouTube, MyTube, AnyTube, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you get your podcasts. My blog is at lisabernbach.com, and you will find links and photos to things that we discussed today. This podcast is produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My engineer is Jimmy Regan. My team is Spressa Arucci, Michael Port, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, stay dry and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>